issues. This is why I say salvation cannot be by works. But there is always bound to be something that goes wrong. It could be the one thing that you do one day before you die. The true gospel says Christ is enough and we are complete in him. There's nothing that we can do to add to what he has already done. Salvation has never been about us anyway. That's the one thing that people don't understand. Salvation has never really ultimately been about us. It's been always about Christ and about God's glory. And so God will not fail to glorify himself in our salvation in spite of our many stumblings, many sins, in spite of whatever may come to us in this life. God is not going to fail to bring any of his people to himself. That's why he sent Christ to secure our salvation. So praise God for that testimony. But we're going to go before the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing. I trust that everybody can hear us. Everybody is connected who is listening. I think they are connected. Otherwise, someone would have sent me a message to that effect. <laughs> Let's go before the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing again. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you again to worship you and honor you as we go into your word. Lord, we ask for your help to understand and receive the very difficult matters of your sovereignty and the implications of them. These are doctrines that a lot of preachers shy away from because of the offense. And yet, Lord, by grace we come seeking boldness and faithfulness to declare that which is true, that which brings honor to you, to your name. We honor you, Lord, for this hour. May you help us with the hearing of your teaching, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we are in Exodus 6. Actually, for some reason I thought, is that correct? It's Exodus 6. For some reason I was thinking it's Exodus 7. Exodus chapter 6. No, 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 sorry. Sorry, we are in 7. I am so ahead of myself. Exodus chapter 7. I had opened a page where I referenced back Exodus 6, and for some reason I thought that was the beginning of where my message started. So anyway, Exodus chapter 7, and we are going to read the text. New King James Version. So the Lord said to Moses, See, I've made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you. And Aaron, your brother, shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land. And I'll harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people 
the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. Then Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded them, so they did. And Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Verse 8. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you saying, Show a miracle for yourselves, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh and let it become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went in to Pharaoh and they did so just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants and became a serpent. But Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers, so the, magi the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For every man threw down his rod and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up the rods. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. Verse 14. So the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out to the water and he shall stand by the river's bank to meet him. And the rod which was turned to a serpent you shall take in your hand and you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now, you would not hear. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the river shall die, the river shall stink, and the Egyptians will loathe to drink the water of the river. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, over their rivers, over their ponds, and over all their pools of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in the buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. And Moses and Aaron did so just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. The fish that were in the river died, the river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. So there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, as the Lord has said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house, neither was his heart moved by this. So all the Egyptians dug all around the river for water to drink, because they could not drink the water of the river. And seven days passed after the Lord has struck the river. And that's the word of the Lord. And for title, we have one title. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And this is going to be part one of the hardening. I don't know when I'll bring the next side B of that understanding. But... 
you're going to have to go into it and draw some gospel understanding also from that. So we are back again to God's preaching of the gospel in Egypt through Pharaoh, Moses, and the children of Israel who are in bondage. And as I've said before, we must think and understand these stories as telling or as an unfolding of the story of Christ and God also revealing to us the reason why things have turned out to be what they are. There is a big showing of God's absolute sovereignty in this story, absolute sovereignty of his creation, which is very important to our own appreciation of who God is and what salvation means or should mean, and also in our interpretation of the events of our life and the events of the world. The Lord said in Exodus 6 that he was doing all these things in Egypt ultimately for one purpose, that all may know, that all may know that he is the Lord the sovereign God who rules over all of his creation. Let us hear Exodus 6 again. Let's go to Exodus chapter 6, verse 2 to 8. Exodus 6, verse 2 to 8. Moses says, And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, as God Almighty, but by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. By my name, Yahweh, I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. And I have also had the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant." Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. God is putting 100% the responsibility of the salvation of his people to his own power and hands and covenant and say, you shall know that I am Yahweh when I do all these things to deliver my people. That's how you're going to know him. Verse 7, I will take you as my people. So that's what's going to happen in the wake of that judgment. I will take you as my people and I'll be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brings you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. You shall know that God is God in salvation. That's what God is saying. Verse 8. And I'll bring you into the land which I sworn to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I'll give it to you as a heritage, as an inheritance. You shall know that God is God when he brings you to heaven. That's what God is saying. You shall know him 
that he is Yahweh when he keeps his promise of salvation and bring you into his blessedness. That's the only way to know him. I am the Lord. <laughs> so I am the Lord is the constant refrain from the mouth of the Lord and that's the Lord Jesus who is speaking. Why? Because he is introducing himself to his creation so that we may know him as the only one who holds that title and should be honored and praised for being that, for being who he is, because God alone is worthy of honor and glory and blessing. But his creation cannot appreciate this fact apart from his work in judgment and in salvation. And so the Egyptian drama was set for this very purpose, which end would see its fulfillment in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why when the Lord Jesus came, when he was born, he had to go to Egypt to rehearse, picking up on the drama to say, I am the one who was being prophesied in the story of Israel in Egypt. So God shall be the Lord in judgment and in salvation of his people. You shall not know God by him getting you a new car and a new house and a pay raise. That's not how you know God. That's how he has been popularized in much of the prosperity so-called gospel. But that's not how you know God. You know God by way of salvation and judgment. Hear what the Lord Jesus said in John 5. John 5, verse 20 to 23. John 5, 20 to 23, the Lord Jesus said, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these, that you may marvel, that you may just glory and be amazed at Jesus. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father gives life also the Son. The Father does what he does and the Son also claims to have the same ability. To give life not to everyone. He gives life to whom he wills. And if the son is determined to give you life, there's nothing that he can do to undo it. For the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son, so God the father is not the one who judges you. Jesus says, he has committed all manner of judgment to the Son. But why? Verse 23. That all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So God has committed all matter of judgment to the Son. 
that the Son may be glorified. And in the glory of the Son is also the glorification of the Father. So the Lord is saying the matter of salvation and judgment is so that the Son may be honored. And that to say all that has happened in creation, especially the matter of sin, was so that Christ may be glorified, that his name may be known, because in the name of Christ every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. And that means everything that has happened to us, that has happened to me, that has happened to you and will happen to you, your marriage, your health, your finances, to the weather, whether good or bad, to earthquakes, financial stress, ruin of nations, wars, disease, sickness, death, is all to the effect that the Son may be glorified. <laughs> that God may be known that he is God because he alone controls all these things. That Christ will have the preeminence in all things. Christ will have the preeminence in all things. So the ultimate reason to the why of sin, because people don't deal with the issue of the why of sin and death, the why of our weakness is so that Christ may have all the preeminence. If you know this and you believe this, then you pretty much understand everything. If you understand the preeminence of Christ, the glory of God in Christ, God's absolute sovereignty in all things, you understand everything. On the other hand, if you do not know this, no matter how educated you are, you don't know a single thing. You don't. All knowledge, the wisdom of knowledge and understanding is found in Christ alone. Okay? So we see that judgment and salvation are two sides of the same coin. They come together. Judgment and salvation always come together. Just as we see the Lord Jesus on the cross judging to condemnation, the one thief on one hand and all who are represented by his testimony of unbelief and judging unto salvation, the repentant thief and all who are represented by his testimony and we're going to see later in the Red Sea the salvation and also what? This judgment. The children of Israel passed through, but Pharaoh and his people and his army, guess what? They are swept away, they are judged unto death. So judgment and salvation always come as a couple. That is why Jesus was crucified in the middle, because he alone makes the difference between saved and unsaved. He is the mediator of life and death. Okay? So it is incorrect to see the whole matter of salvation as if God is reacting to our sin, to the sin of his creation. 
The all-knowing God does not react to anything as if he was too busy or gets too tired or he takes a nap and then when he wakes up, all hell has gone loose, broken loose in the Garden of Eden. No, that's not true. The sin of his creation is there for the purpose that his creation may know him as the Lord. In judgment and in salvation as the Lord, our righteousness. Thus the bondage of the children of Israel in Egypt is a picture of the spiritual bondage of his people who are in the world, even of his creation. But it is important for us to appreciate the fact that it is God who put the children of Israel there for nothing happens apart from him. He even said that to Abraham in Genesis 15, that his descendants were going to be under slavery to a foreign nation and then in time he was going to come and deliver them. And it is he, it is God who raised Pharaoh for the working out Of this testimony, God raised Pharaoh. So the bondage of the children of Israel was God preaching about sin and law and their effects together. When you combine sin and law, you find what? Not freedom, but bondage. Sin and law impose heavy burdens on sinners. Burdens that they cannot carry, from which you and I need deliverance. We need salvation because of sin, and the law comes to produce death because of sin. So the law is pictured in the taskmasters of Pharaoh, and it comes to work and enforce heavy burdens of righteousness on people who cannot bear them, who cannot carry them, the result of which is death. If you can't carry the burdens of the law, guess what? It's going to crush you. You're going to die. That is how I have understood the law to be. Not being of freedom, but of slavery, of producing burdens, and yet not helping you to carry them. Okay? So in Exodus 7, Moses and Aaron make their visit to Pharaoh. And that is to say, all that was introduction. (laughs) Moses and Aaron make their visit to Pharaoh. Verse 1 of Exodus 7. So the Lord said to Moses, See, I've made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet. So God issued a command, but it was based on typology. He said, Moses, I have made you as God to Pharaoh. And that means Moses shall be the one who carries the power and authority of God to Pharaoh so that whatever words God spoke through Moses, they would have the same power and authority on the subject. And then Aaron, the brother, would be a prophet, which means he would speak on behalf of Moses. And that tells you the classical definition of a prophet. 
right? A prophet is one who is commissioned of God to speak the words of God. They speak the words of God not like these self-styled prophets of our day who speak their own minds about their lying visions. I think that's Ezekiel or Jeremiah who called them lying visions. Yeah? The Lord told me to tell you. No. He didn't tell you anything. See that relationship again. Verse 2. You shall speak all that I command you. And Aaron your brother shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land. So God will speak to Moses and Moses will speak to Aaron and Aaron will speak to Pharaoh. God is teaching the matter of mediation. He could have just spoken directly to Pharaoh if he wanted You and I need to understand the matter of mediation when it comes to God. One cannot just come before God with a bag of Doritos and their flip-flops and open their mouth and start talking. It doesn't work like that. We have to understand the matter of mediation. Okay? So one must come by way of the appointed mediator in the manner of a God-appointed high priest, that is the nature of the mediator, he is a God-appointed high priest and sacrifice. You need more than just a high priest, you also need a God-appointed sacrifice. You need the blood of that mediator who is Christ Jesus, the message. But then the Lord said a very strange thing, verse 3 of Exodus 7, He said, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. God says, he will harden Pharaoh's heart and that without apology. And this is a matter that many cannot deal with. A God who comes and demands his creatures to do something but then does not give them the power to obey. Because a lot of people read the commands of the scriptures to say, oh, repent and believe. And naturally people think everybody has the natural ability to do so. No, you don't. And someone says, oh, God has to give everyone the ability to believe for him to be fair. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is not... A Democrat. He doesn't hold to human rights and all equal rights and this other foolishness. He is the sovereign one who does his will. He hardens people and we're going to develop that. This is what God is doing to Pharaoh. He is hardening Pharaoh and there's no good way to explain this truth away. There's cause, reason, and effect. God is the cause of the hardening. And the effect or result is that Pharaoh or whoever is hardened will not be able to do what God demands to be done. And the reason 
being that so that God would demonstrate his power by punishing the person for failing to do what God demanded them to do, but prevented them from doing it. <laughs> Lord of mercy. Yes, we shall see later or hear of Pharaoh hardening, hardening his own heart. But that is not as a primary cause, but an effect or a result of God's own hardening. God is always the first cause of anything. If it doesn't begin with God, it does not happen. It doesn't matter how it shows itself. It has to begin with him. God is always the first cause of anything and everything. Pharaoh, Pharaoh could not decide to harden his own heart because he had no clue of what this whole thing was all about. Pharaoh did not even have the power to harden himself. But this is a very important doctrine that we need to develop more in our teaching. Okay? For now, let's proceed with the text to see the effect of the hardening. Verse 4. This is what God said. But Pharaoh will not heed you. He will not listen to you. Why? So that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. So I've hardened Pharaoh's heart so that I may do all these things to Egypt. So that I may lay my hand on Egypt in great judgments and deliver my people. So God is essentially not letting Pharaoh to let the people go so that he would bring a big show of strength and power and be praised for it. God did not just want for the people to be set free. If he wanted, he could have come to Pharaoh in a dream and scared the day life out of him. He could have done that. <laughs> but no, he wanted Pharaoh to resist the irresistible. And for that, let's go to Romans 9 to have the theological understanding of what God is doing. Romans 9. And we begin at verse 17. Paul says, For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose, I, God, have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed, may be declared in all the earth as it is this very day, this hour. We're still proclaiming the name of the Lord. And that is a quotation 
from Exodus 9, 16, which we are yet to get to. But this hardening was not constrained to Pharaoh alone, even among Israel and many peoples of the world. God has hardened people so that some of them would not believe. Verse 15, Romans 9. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whomever I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whomever I'll have compassion. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he does what? He hardens. <laughs> he will have mercy on whom he wills, and on whom he wills, he hardens. And that is a hard saying. That raised a lot of objections. Which objections God silenced by reading the rioting act or the riot act to anyone who objects. And says, verse 19, you say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? That's a good argument. It sounds like God says, well, I have hardened Pharaoh's heart so that you not let my people go, but I want him to set my people go, but I won't let him to set my people go. And I'm going to make him responsible for not setting my people go. So the natural reaction to that is, so why does he still find fault? He's the one getting in the way of me doing what he wants me to do. God says, no. Who are you anyway? So this is the matter that people don't understand because the God of the Bible is not like the President of the United States. He is the God, the Almighty, who has ever existed, always existed, and has reason of existence that is found in himself. He doesn't need to eat. He doesn't need to breathe to be alive. He has to be glorified. So men and women need to know the difference between them and God. God is not our grandpa. Okay? God is not our grandpa. God is God. He is holy. Even the angels that never sinned, they can't even look at him. They cover their faces and sing holy, holy. Right? Isaiah chapter 6 testimony. That's who we are dealing with. But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Who are you? God is saying, show me your resume. Show me your resume. Show me your qualifications. Show me your power. Show me your righteousness. That I may listen to you. Who are you, O oh man? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it? God says, you are a thing formed. <laughs> you are a thing formed to say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Because saying you have no rights to question him about anything. Verse 21. Does not the porter have power over the clay from the same lamp to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? So the porter is God. And we all are in the picture of the clay, the lamb of clay. 
And God is saying there's no difference between the unbeliever and the believer in themselves. Who makes the difference is God. All this free will, teaching, and foolishness is foolishness. <laughs> the difference between saved and unsaved comes down to God. He is the porter. He has the power and the freedom to fashion different vessels. Some vessels for honor as vessels of mercy, as vessels of his salvation, of his blessing, and other vessels to put outside in the cold for dishonor. So God argues for his sovereign right and justice to do whatever he wants. And he says when he does that, he is still holy and righteous and just. There's no unrighteousness in him if he hadn't someone to unbelief. And now, unbelief is sin. Unbelief is sin. And yet God is righteous in hardening sinners to unbelief. People want to ascribe the cause of hardness of the hearts of men and women to their own stubbornness. But that is an incomplete attribution. It is giving glory to men of things that they are not able to do. I am not able to harden my own heart. I can try. I am not able to. God is he who hardens people's hearts. And it is not sin for him to do that. Because he has the right to do whatever he wants with his own creation. Just as it is not sin for you and I to take some of our old clothes, some that we have never even we bought them some two Christmases ago and forgot to wear them. And then we gained some weight and discovered that they don't fit anymore. And we decide to do what? Donate to charity. Or put in the garbage can. And if anyone would come and object to that, you'd say, because they are your clothes. They are your clothes. They are your shoes to do whatever pleases you. And if you want to argue with God, he says, who are you anyway? What right do you have to stand on your toes and argue with him? And many now come and say, but if you say that, you make God the author of sin. They use that. It's like their nuclear bomb to try and undo God's right. It is a foolish expression. You make God the author of sin is a foolish expression. Did God not cause Pharaoh to not obey his command? Did God apologize for it and say, I'm very sorry, dear Pharaoh. I did not really mean to do that. Also, if you want, did Job do anything wrong to go through all that suffering? Was it not an evil thing that happened to Job? I bet it was losing all your children in one day. 
losing all his livestock, losing all his servants, his health. Yeah? Job did not slip and slide or slip and fell and broke his jaw in the snow. Okay? Some really bad things happened to him. Some evil things happened to him. And a lot of the newer Bible translations will translate the evil as adversity or calamity in, a, in an attempt to reduce the force of what God is saying. Because they are ashamed of the fence. And yet, when God came, he did not apologize for it and say, oh, it is the devil who made me to do it. Okay? Actually, it wasn't even the devil who instigated this. It is God himself who brought Job to the attention of the devil and said, well, have you considered my job, my seven job, that there's none like him on the earth? A righteous man, a man who fears God. Yeah? And Job said to that, to his friends, who doesn't know that God has done this to me? Who does not know? Who does not know that God has done this? And God came and said, well, listen to Job. Job has spoken that which is right about me. And many preachers and people are not saying that which is right about God. So, yes, God hardened Pharaoh's heart and caused him to sin against him and yet made Pharaoh responsible, made him accountable or liable for that disobedience. So do not think that just because we are accountable or responsible for our sins, it implies that we necessarily have the power to not do them. And yet God still finds us guilty. Yeah? This is the true God of the Bible. This is the true God of the Bible. And this cannot be received by the majority of people who call themselves Christians because they believe in a false God. They believe in a lie. Okay? Let's go to verse 22 of Romans 9. God continues these arguments and says, What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Prepared for destruction by him. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory. So the vessels of mercy prepared by him before for his glory. So the judgment again and the salvation there that he may show us his glory. Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So God determined to show his wrath in judgment. And that is why he created the reprobates. If he wanted, he could have just created only the elect. It was within his power to do. And that to say, no one makes themselves a reprobate by anything that they do. For we are all like the rest with respect to our inclination to sin. 
We are not different from anybody. Okay? But many preachers want to play tricks or gymnastics about this matter. Even, unfortunately, a lot of the reformed preachers, popular ones, and say, well, you go to hell by yourself. Well, yes, you come to heaven by God's grace, but hell is what you decide by yourself. There's no one who decides anything. (laughs) There's no one who goes to hell because of themselves. Just as there's no one who goes to heaven because of good behavior or because of their choice. Heaven and hell, reprobation and election are all matters of God's determination. It is he who makes one lamp for honor, vessels of mercy, as the porter to show his mercy. And it is he who also makes the vessels of dishonor, the reprobates, the reprobates, that he may demonstrate his justice. So both his wrath and mercy are put on display through the matter of condemnation and salvation so that all may know that he is the Lord. That's the whole end. That's the end of this business. That everyone may know that he is Yahweh. And I would admit to you, that these are hard sayings. They require the Spirit of God to really declare them. This is hard on my flesh too. Yeah. So may the Lord grant you the ears to hear it and to accept it and to rejoice in it. This is what magnifies the grace of God to you as the vessels of mercy. And anyone who thinks heaven happened by their choice of Christ or anything that they did are still very foreign to the matter of this God of the Bible. They don't know the God of the Bible. Here's another conclusion that we can draw from this. We can draw the truth that there's no vessel of mercy that was created a reprobate. In other words, there's no ship that was created a god, and then through some genetic engineering became a ship when they chose Jesus. A ship is a ship from eternity. Lost ship, yes. Sinful ship, yes. Ignorant, blind, and stubborn ship, yes. But always ship. A reprobate is a reprobate, whether religious and sweet, it doesn't matter, has done many wonderful things, it doesn't matter. So there's no ship that ever was in danger of being lost to hell, as is preached by many leading reformed preachers. There are no people that God determined to serve who shall go to hell? Not a single person, but Christ died to serve who go to hell. Whether they be infants, aborted, or have mental issues, the issue is, are they vessels of mercy? And some of these things are not for our determination. Some of these things are hidden in the secret counsel of God. God's power 
of grace and mercy is made known by serving those that are not able to save themselves. God saved us whilst we were still enemies with him. Ungodly. We're sinners. And with no strength, we had no power to do anything. Okay? Let's go to Exodus 7 verse 8. Aaron's miraculous rod. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Show a miracle for yourselves, then you shall say to Aaron, Take a rod and cast it before Pharaoh and let it become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and they did so, just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants and he became a serpent. I'm not sure if Aaron had his own separate rod from that of Moses. My first speculation is that it is the same rod that Moses had which God had asked him to put down and it turned into a serpent. But then it could be a different rod, Aaron's, which budded and then later was put into the Ark of the Covenant. But it doesn't matter at this point whose it was, as long as we know that it belongs to the side of God. <laughs> okay? The matter is that God was showing his power through it. Verse 11. But Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers. So the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For every man threw down his rod and they became serpents. So Pharaoh, just like King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon later, had his own sorcerers, his own magicians. These surely being pictures of Satan's minions with their counterfeit miracles and counterfeit gospel. They are trying to imitate what God is doing. And this is a gospel testimony. Remember, God is preaching the gospel. So in the gospel business, you're going to find people who appear to be doing the same things, preaching the same gospel they sound to be very close. Look, they both had rods that turned into serpents. So a lot of the false preachers still say some things that seemingly sound to be righteous. They will speak of Jesus, even speak of the Trinity. They will speak of grace. They will talk about the Holy Spirit. But they are just magicians. <laughs> they are magicians of Pharaoh. Hear this from Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 11, 2 Corinthians 11, 12 to 15. Paul had this situation in the Corinthian church. Paul says, but what I do, I will also continue to do. That I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity or occasion to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers. The magicians of Pharaoh were deceitful workers. 
transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, into ministers of the gospel, whose end will be according to their works. So in the Corinthian church, there were some so-called super apostles who were causing trouble. Yeah? And Paul described them as those who desired an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. They desired to be regarded as the true apostles of Christ, just as the magicians and the sorcerers desired to be regarded as genuine miracle workers at the same level or same grade as that of Moses and Aaron. So the false preachers are they who are in the picture of the sorcerers and the magicians. They want to be regarded as ministers of the gospel, ministers of righteousness, and yet they are by the working of Satan, perverting God's truth. That's what is on display here. Okay? But going back to Exodus 7, this is what happened. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord has said. So Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods to make the distinction of who was the true God and who was not. And so the truth of Christ who swallow up all the rods of lies that have been cast by the magicians and sorcerers of the false gospel. The Christ shall stand. The truth of Christ shall be vindicated as the only truth. But Pharaoh did not heed them. His heart grew hard. In other words, he doubled down on his stubbornness exactly as God has said he would. And we will see that from the beginning of Exodus 1, God has been preparing Moses for this encounter with Pharaoh. The conversation, the life of Moses, the conversation is preparing Moses to meet with Pharaoh. But from verse 7 and following, God begins to introduce himself to Pharaoh and preparing Pharaoh for the destruction ahead. And Pharaoh's life will never be the same again. These miracles are preparing Pharaoh and also Egypt that they may know that the Lord is God who rules over all, not their pantheon of gods. Egypt recognized a lot of idols that they called gods. And Israel also is supposed to know that they were God's people and that he alone could deliver them and having delivered them for them to now come and worship him as Yahweh. 
So every plague, every miracle is building us up to this testimony and reality. Now we have the first plague, waters become blood. Verse 14, so the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out to the water and he shall stand by the river's bank to meet him and the rod which was turned to a serpent you shall take in your hand. God says Pharaoh's heart is hard and he refuses to say the people go. Now go to him in the morning when he goes out to the water which seemed to be his daily or morning routine which surely God knew about. God knows about everyone's routine. Whatever it is, coffee routine, yoga routine, especially sin routine. He knows. He says, go and meet him by the river's bank, the Nile River, and don't forget to bring with you the rod Bring the rod with you to Pharaoh. And you shall say to him, verse 16, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now, you would not hear. God wants Pharaoh to know that there is the Lord God of the Hebrews. And Moses is his spokesperson with Aaron with regards to this particular matter of the salvation of his people, Israel. And the message to be delivered was specific. Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. Set my people free. And the Christ came for this very purpose, to set the people free, that they may serve God in truth and spirit, even in this wilderness of the world, we are still in the wilderness, and yet we are serving God according to his truth. Verse 17, Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I'll strike the waters which are in the river, which the rod, sorry, with the, lo- with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. So by this Pharaoh would know that I am the Lord, God says. When God turns all the waters of Egypt into blood and suffocate to death all the marine life. The Nile River was and still is the source of life, of productivity, fertility, the economy of Egypt and Ethiopia too. Right now, Ethiopia and Egypt are feuding over the construction of a dam by Ethiopia. Ethiopia is constructing a hydroelectric power station, which is called the Grand Renaissance Ethiopian Dam. And that construction interferes with the natural flow of the Blue Nile downstream to Egypt. And Egypt is saying, the construction of such a dam endangers its own water security and life. Whilst Ethiopia is saying, 
Not constructing the dam means lack of energy and economic development. So that's what is happening with the Nile right now. So the Nile was deified. It was worshipped as a god of sorts, as providing life. And yet all life comes not from the Nile, but from God who created and gave it to man. Okay? From my reading, I learned that there were religious festivals that were held to the God of the Nile River. Especially when the Nile was flooding, they would perform rituals to thank and praise the God of the Nile. And that to say all of Egypt is in idolatry. That's one of the things that God is coming to declare. Just like the rest of the world then and even now. And when God brings his people to Christ, he begins by knocking their idolatry down. Especially the idol of free will. Yeah, it is the most celebrated idol by sinners. My free will, my choice. <laughs> and this is what God is going to do. He will cause the fish in your little tank of free will to die and stink. Okay, he's going to do that. Verse 18. And the fish that are in the river shall die the river shall stink and the Egyptians will love to drink the water of the river. And right there in one fell swoop, Egypt's water security was destroyed. The water was made unusable and none could go to the beach anymore. <laughs> and if it were our time, a country that relies on tourism would be set on its knees if all their waters were made to stink up and turned into blood. Yeah? Verse 19. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to Aaron, Take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, over their rivers, over their ponds, and over all their pools of water, that they may become blood, and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood and pitchers of stone, and Moses and Aaron did so just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the waters were, and all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. The fish that were in the river died. The river stank and the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. So there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did what was instructed them and suddenly Egypt had no water of life to sustain them. This is the judgment that God brings through Moses, even through the law. It has blood in it. But it is not the blood that brings life, but shuts one out of life. When the Christ came, he came with the blood and the water. That is why his first miracle at Cana in Galilee was turning water that had been filled in pitchers into wine 
into blood, saying he is the better Moses. His wine makes for the marriage ceremony. For the party of the marriage ceremony. Jesus is not saying, well, if you have a wedding and you run out of wine, then call Jesus. He is preaching the gospel. Moses is in view. Egypt is in view. And Christ has come with a better blood. In the pitchers of water, he turns that water into blood. But the blood of Christ had a different testimony. It was the blood of the new covenant and the water of purification. It was blood shed for the remission of sins and the water that springs up to eternal life, not that which stank and killed. To the saved, this water of Christ is the smell of life unto life, but to the unbelievers, it is the stench of death unto death. The blood of Christ speaks of better things than that of Abel. It is blood that has life or has life even now. The blood of Christ is life. For life is in the blood. Okay. Let's work some things as we kind of draw on the other side of closing the message. Still in Egypt. Water availability is critical to the life of a people. And God turns off the tape or pipe, as it were, by making all their natural resources unusable. And by this, God was asserting his power and saying, he has power over what we think are sources of life. The things that we think are sources of life have no life in themselves. And God is going to come and show you or me that in one way or the other. As Jesus said, your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Okay? So God comes and causes droughts and famine, which thing he already did in Egypt with Joseph, in the time of Joseph. And out of these things, he also comes and delivers because God can turn that which we think will bring life into death. And that is exactly the matter of the law. That's where I'm going with this. That which many think was the source of life became death. Here, Apostle Paul in Romans 7, 9 to 12, Paul says, And I was once alive apart from the law. But with the coming of the commandments, sin became alive. When the commandments came, sin became alive. And I died. <laughs> That's funny to me. So I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life brought death. The very commandment that I thought would make me righteous and accepted by God, I found to kill me. For sin, seizing opportunity through the commandment, see that 
relationship. Sin, taking advantage, seeking, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. Sin deceived Paul that he could have life and righteousness by law keeping, like many people are saying here and now. Sin deceives people to think that they can do the law. But Paul says, when that happened to me, I did not see life but death. It deceived me and through it I died. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Okay? The problem is not the law, the problem is sin. But when you mix the two, you always have one outcome. That which you think brings life because of its goodness does the very opposite. We tell people, you can't go back to the law. Or they say, oh no, the law is good. Yes, the law is good. But guess what? It's going to kill you. That's the problem. The goodness of the law is your problem. Because it kills you. Yes, it is holy and good. But if you think it brings life, you have been deceived. As Paul said. That water in Egypt, that water in the Nile, which used to bring life to Egypt, became death for them. It became death for them. Because they were not getting life from the water ultimately. Yeah? Verse 22. Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. So the magicians also tried to do the same with their enchantments. These were indeed some fake magicians. Because to my way of thinking, if they had any power, they would have reversed everything that Moses was doing. Okay? They would undo everything that Moses and Aaron were doing. But Pharaoh was not moved. And that means there's no number of miracles that would turn one's heart to God. People say, oh, I need to see miracles. No, you can never be converted to God by seeing miracles. It happened with Christ in, in Israel. They saw him feeding thousands of people, healing the sick, the blind, the crippled, and yet they still put him on the cross. Okay? There's no amount of preaching either that would turn one to God. <laughs> Why? Because unless God prepares the heart and does not harden the heart, softens the heart for you to hear the gospel, and the same God grants faith and repentance, no one is coming to Christ. Noah preached for how many weeks? He preached for 150 years and no one listened to him. He had zero converts. <laughs> Why? Because regeneration is the work of God alone. God has to cause it. If God does not cause it, it doesn't matter how many sermons you preach. It doesn't matter how well they are. It doesn't matter how long they are. No one is coming to Christ. A man must be made alive before they can hear. You don't go to a patient who has died and try to give them their prescription. Okay? They have to be made alive. 
dead men don't take medicine. Okay, they have to made, be made alive. Lazarus had to be made alive first before the sisters could go and make him some cornbread and chicken wings. I'm sure he had some cornbread after that resurrection. Remember, the sisters used to know how to cook too. Like Martha was very skilled at cooking. Like, oh dear brother, we missed you. I'm going to make you some cornbread. <laughs> what a mercy. Verse 23 and 24 and following Exodus 7. Almost done. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house. Neither was his heart moved by this. So all the Egyptians dug all around the river for water to drink because they could not drink the water of the river. And seven days passed after the Lord struck the river. So Pharaoh just looked to everything that had happened and went to his house. And I'm very positive he was cursing at the name of the Lord on his way. I'm sure he was doing that. But remember what he had said earlier in Exodus 5 verse 2. He said, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? Who is he? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. I just, I don't know him. I don't care. (laughs) What is he going to do to me? I'm not going to let Israel go. So what did the Egyptians do in the light of all this? The text says they dug all around the river for water to drink because they could not drink the water of the Nile. And that means they had to find another way of salvation. If you have understood the testimony of the law and what the law brings, you will have to find another way. You will have to find another way. If you have understood what the law is claiming, the curses of the law, the perfection and the burdens that it brings, you have to find another way. You have to dig around to see if you can find some water to drink. And that is the way that we preach the way of God's grace the way of Christ, the way of the cross, the way of the free imputation of God's righteousness is the way to get the water of life when everything else has been spoiled. This is the only way to find life. Otherwise you die in your sins. And the gospel declares to us of that blood of Christ by which we have been reconciled to God. Colossians 1 19 and 20, Paul says, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. This blood of Christ makes peace. It's different from the blood that was shed in Egypt that did not bring peace but judgment. Christ made peace for God's people by the blood of the cross. And Romans 5, 9 says, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. 
Moses did not make peace with the blood. He brought misery on the people. He made the water undrinkable. Christ is he who makes the bitter waters sweet. The Lord does not make peace for a sinner because it has no ability to meet the peace terms for you. Please hear and understand. Christ alone is your friend, not Moses, unless you have been hardened just as happened to Pharaoh. Yes, God has hardened people so that they will not hear the gospel, they will hear but they won't believe. As Jesus said in John 12, 37 to 38, or more, actually maybe to 41. John 12, that will be our last verse and we'll be done there. John 12, 37 to 41, the hardening of people by God in the matter of salvation. John says, quoting from Isaiah, but although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe him. Although he had done so many miracles, they did not believe. As I said, miracles don't cause people to believe. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke and said, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes. God has blinded their eyes and has hardened their hearts. Why? Lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, and turn there is repent so that I should heal them. Christ is saying, He does not want some people to repent. He does not want to save them. So he hardens their hearts. That's sovereignty. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. That's Isaiah 6 testimony. When Isaiah saw the Lord, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. That's the testimony. So my brothers and sisters, we ought to be careful of how we are hearing in the matters of salvation, in the matter of who God is, the true God of the Bible is very offensive. He is not the kind that a lot of churches and so-called preachers and many professing Christians are preaching. They want the one that they've shaved off all the offense so that he's more pliable, is more docile, is more approachable, is more likable, is vulnerable to them. Like I always say, this is why people love the Jesus in the manger. Because he always appears very vulnerable and they come and say, Oh, he's so cute. Look at him. Look at those cheeks and all that foolishness. But this is the king of glory. Okay? He hardens heart, hearts and praise God if he has softened your heart to believe his testimony. Okay? All right, we are done. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you. We thank you for these many words that have been spoken. I pray, Lord, that you would bring this understanding into the hearts of your people, open their eyes, 
give them hearts of flesh that they may hear and turn and believe of the true God, the God who showed himself in Egypt, the God who also showed himself in Palestine, the person of Christ Jesus who was hung on the cross for the sake of his people, that he may deliver his people by his own blood through many judgments, through his outstretched arms on the cross. We honor you, we glorify you, Lord. May you keep us in our going in and out. We remember all our brothers and sisters, wherever they are, who are struggling with all kinds of things, health-wise, whatever issues of life, Lord, remember them and grant them all the relief they need. We honor you, glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.